So we are uh, continuing our, our message series. We've been working our way through this summer, through the Gospel of Luke, and we've just been encouraging you to read on your own and just to, to stay on track um, as we're studying through the whole Gospel. We're going to cover the whole Gospel, but uh, we're going two chapters a week, and, and just as we, we know, we do not have time to look at every story, every verse um, throughout the entire Gospel, so I encourage you to read on your own. Um, And if you are reading through it on your own, you might have noticed that we are at the halfway point of the gospel. So we have have made it there, um, and yet we are not at the halfway point through summer. Uh, This, again, camp is kind of our last kind of um, church activity for summer. Like I said, our fall programming is right around the corner, even though it doesn't feel like fall, right? And uh, we do have um, this next week is dead week for the high school sports, and so there's no practices in that, and, and that is kind of the last deep breath, right, before we go straight into the school year. And so, you know, after that is sports are already running, but we got dead week this week, jumping into that. School starts in just a few weeks, um, and so just encourage you to be in prayer, be, uh, be praying for our community, for, um, you know, our, our teachers and administrators as they all go back, our students to go back. Um, like I said, fall sports is all of these things that are happening. And um, we need to be in prayer. We just need God to, to continue to guide each of us. And we do have an event coming up, and it's, the details are in your bulletin. But we have this, this prayer revival that Kim's leading here in just, uh, in just a few weeks. And in that, again, she does a great job of leading this. We've done this before, but she sets up prayer stations all throughout the room in here in the sanctuary. And again, for uh, just an entire day, we just got times where you can drop in and you can pray. Again, if you can come for 10 minutes, you can do that. It's a self-guided thing. Like, you just come in and, and you know, do it as you feel led. You can be here at 10 minutes. You can be here for hours. You can be here, you know, as long as you want to be or God leads you to be. But I just encourage you to be in prayer, right, and continue to, to seek the Lord and just be transitioned into, into uh, this next school year. So as we look at that, we are continuing our way through the Gospel of Luke. We are on today, chapters 13 and 14. So if you have your Bibles with you, just invite you to open with me to, to Luke chapter 13 and 14. And just, just keep your Bible open there. We're going to go back to it a couple times. If you're with us in person, you don't have your own Bible, there are Bibles provided for you in the seats there that you're welcome to use. Um, if you're with us online, we're glad to have you. I uh, hope you have your Bible there as well. Um, if not, you can just listen as I read and describe these passages. But um, last week in chapters 12 or 11 and 12, we saw how, how, again, Jesus gets very practical with his teachings, right? And, and he brought up some, some two major issues even within the church. He talked about money and he talked about hypocrisy, right? And we, we saw those last week. And, and he continues on into chapters 13 and 14 as Jesus teaches on some, once again, some very practical things. Now, Luke 13 and 14 are, are very um, interesting passages in that um, Luke does something very unique with these two chapters. In fact, chapter 13 and chapter 14 are parallel passages. Okay, now, they're different stories, different illustrations, different parables, but they have the same subject matter twice. They, in fact, they're, again, parallel passages. In fact, uh, Luke 13, verses 10 through 35 has the same structure, the same major topics as Luke 14, 1 through 24. So, which kind of makes me sit back and be like, well, why would he do that? Well, maybe these topics are pretty important, <laughs> right? Maybe they're ones that we need to make sure we get, and he's going to run by, us, by them by us twice to make sure we get them. Okay, and so today, as we look at these passages, we're going to be dan- ban- 
dancing between, jumping between both chapters, right, and, and these. Um, as we see, though, all of the concepts that are, are presented in both Luke 13 and 14, they are, are, have a common theme of this verse, and it's the verse right in between the two passages. Okay, Luke uh, chapter 13, verse 30. Okay, and this is the NIV version of that verse where it says, Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. Okay, now, this is a concept, when we read this, this is a familiar phrase, right? The first will be last, the last will be first. And maybe you've heard this before. In fact, that's why I put the NIV version on your outline, okay? Because it uses the words first and last, okay? A phrase that we've probably heard before. Maybe you didn't know it came from Luke 13, but, but we've all heard that concept, right? In fact, we've all been there because we can identify with that. We've all, we've all been last, right? We, we've been those moments, right, when we, we can't stand being last, right? Whether, whether it's a sports competition, right, there, or I don't know about you, but like my mind instantly goes back to my elementary school days when you go out to recess and you decide you're going to play kickball, right? And you go out there to the, to the backstop and you think the, the first goal in this venture is just don't be picked last, Right? We've all experienced that at different times, in different ways in our life. We don't like being last. And yet here, we, we had, here Jesus says, right, those who are last will be first. And those that are first will end up last. Now again, the, the NLT version, right, the version that the Bibles that I, I read from that are in the seats, okay, it uses the words least important and greatest. Now, again, those, those are not bad translations, right? In fact, I think they're almost a better translation than, than last and first. But, but I, I use the NIV one on your outline just because it's more familiar, right? It's one that you, you've heard. Okay, but when you think about this, right, the least important to the greatest. And he's saying those that seem the least important will eventually be the greatest. Right? And those that, that are greatest now, right, might end up being the least important. And when we think about this idea, this concept, at first, the more we think about it, the more we process it and think, what is Jesus teaching us here? What are we supposed to understand? Okay, I, I want to say that the, the reason Jesus, this core passage, this theme of these two chapters, okay, is, is showing us and teaching us that the gospel turns everything upside down. Okay, the gospel will turn everything upside down. And that, that's exactly what Jesus tells us here, right? He's like, those that think they're first will end up last, right? And those that last will end up first. It is that, that the gospel, right? That the message of Jesus Christ, the good news of who he is, right? That he is the Messiah, that God's chosen son that was sent here to earth to live a sinless life, to die on a cross, to rise again on the third day so we can be saved. The, the whole point of that gospel is to turn everything upside down. Right, to, to take what was lost and make it found. Right, to what is, is dead and make it alive. What has been, been caught up, be set free. The gospel just takes everything that we know, right, that we experience even in the world, and it just flips it upside down. And as we see this concept, right, this again is the theme that runs through all of the stories, the parables, the teachings of these two chapters. Like I said, there are parallel ones. It teaches this over and over again. Um, the, the first 
the first section and the structure within these two chapters um, is where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Okay, now this happens in the beginning of 13 and in 14. 13, 10 through 17 is where Jesus heals a woman that is crippled by an evil spirit. Okay, and in 14 and 1 through 6, Jesus heals a man who has dropsy. And, and again, that, that passage, there's a lot to go into there in that story. We're not going to actually read that one. We're going to read the one this morning in uh, Luke 13, where he heals this woman. So if you have your Bible, look, uh, look with me at Luke 13. We're going to pick up at verse 10. There it says, On one Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. And then he touched her, and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on those days to be healed not on the Sabbath. But the Lord replied, you hypocrites, each of you works on the Sabbath day. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? This shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things that he did. Now, as we read this, this story, right, this interaction that Jesus has with, with not just this woman, but also with the religious leader within the synagogue, right? This is on a Sabbath day. Okay? And this, again, this, this day was one that they held sacred, that, that they held on a pedestal, that there were certain rules and things you could and could not do on a Sabbath day. And, and, and in fact, we've already seen in the gospel several times, and now here we see it happen again, in fact, twice, right, once in both chapters, where Jesus heals on a Sabbath day. And yet, I think Jesus is trying to get them and all of us to understand that, hey, you can take things and you can put them in the wrong order. You can put them in the wrong places. Okay? And that we can kind of drift into that, right? To where something starts out good, but then it ends up being hurtful, right? Or damaging in our lives and even in our faith. And, and, and that's, in fact, what has happened with the Sabbath day, right? It, is it was God created the Sabbath, right? And again, God was for it. It's not the Sabbath is not for God. Right? And it's not for them, right? And they, they had missed the point of the whole deal. And as we look at this, we see that this woman right, was, had been caught in shame for 18 years. Right? This is not like a, you know, a small struggle, right? I mean, this is, this is a burden this lady had been carrying for, for a long time, decades. Right? Yeah, as she comes, Jesus sets her free, right? He, he takes her life Right? And he completely flips it upside down. And notice she shows up to worship that day in shame. Right? She, she was covered, right? I mean, everybody knew, right? And, and again, it was physically obvious to everybody, right, that, that this woman was, was carrying this burden. She came in shame. And notice what did Jesus do? He took her life and he took her shame and he flips it upside down. Right? Because what does the text say? Tell us, right? He says he touched her, right? He heals her. And then it says, and oh, did she praise God. Right? And and we see that, right? That's exactly what Jesus does. He takes our shame and he flips it upside down and turns it into rejoicing. 
Right? That's what he did for this woman, and that's what he invites for, to do for us, right, all the time. And yet, the interesting thing, though, is that it's not just this woman. She's not the only one that ended up flipped over. Right? Because remember, it wasn't just an interaction with her. Jesus also had this interaction with this religious leader. Right? The, the leader of the synagogue on that day. And notice, you know, he comes in, right, with all of the honor, right, with all of the position, right, with all of the control. Right? And notice what's the conclusion of the story, right? We see in verse 17, it says that this shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. Not only did Jesus flip this, this lady's life upside down, she came in shame and left in rejoicing, right? But this religious leader who Jesus calls a hypocrite, right, which we can go back to last week and see what God thinks about that. And he, he literally, got, Jesus calls him out, right, and takes his honor, right, and his position, and he leaves in shame. Okay, as Jesus not only calls out this woman, right, she, he literally calls her out in front of everybody, right? Hey, come, come forward, right? And, and you can imagine her in her shame. She's probably sitting just like you're thinking right now, please don't call me up to the stage, right? And yet that's what Jesus does. He calls her up and he flips over her life completely. And yet, he also calls out this religious leader, right? And he flips over his life. Now, again, Jesus' goal, though, was not to shame this religious leader, right? Jesus' heart in calling him out was that he would change. And we need to understand in this, Jesus calls out this religious leader, but he calls him out in conviction, not in condemnation. And those are two very important distinctives to make. Okay, in fact, I will tell you, the Holy Spirit only convicts you. The Holy Spirit will never condemn you. Okay, condemnation is very different than conviction. Okay, the enemy will always condemn you. Okay, now the difference between condemnation and conviction okay, is that condemnation calls you out to push you down and to make you feel worse. Right, condemnation calls you out to make you feel worse. Conviction calls you out to flip it upside down. Right? Conviction calls you out to make you better. Right? To realize what's wrong in your life so that you can be transformed and changed and made new. The Holy Spirit will only convict you. If God calls you out on something, it's to make you better, to move you to a new direction. Okay, if you feel condemned, that's not coming from God. That's coming from the enemy. Right, it goes back to John 10.10, 10, right? The, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and that's what condemnation does. It's designed to steal, kill, and destroy. Conviction right, gives us the other side of that verse, John 10.10. 10. Jesus says, I know I come to give you life and life to the full. Right, conviction will call you out, but it will make you better take you to a new place. It'll turn you upside down. Okay, and as we look at this story, we see again that, that Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and he does it over and over and over again, right? But he does it um, to, to flip our lives upside down. The next section in both chapters is where Jesus teaches on, on the kingdom of God. 
Okay, Jesus uses several different stories and illustrations to teach us, to help us to get to a better understanding of the way that God's kingdom works. Because God's kingdom does not work the same way the world works. Okay, what did Jesus say? He says, my kingdom is not of this world, right? The, the way that God works is different than the way the world works. And Jesus uses several different stories and illustrations and parables to, to teach us about the way that God's kingdom works. Okay, in chapter 13, he uses three successive stories. Okay, he gives us the, the parable of the mustard seed in verses 18 and 19. Then he gives the parable of the yeast in verses 20 and 21. And then the parable of the narrow door in verses 22 and 29. Okay, then he also teaches on God's kingdom in chapters 14, right, where he talks about humility and honor verse, in verses 7 through 14. And then he gives another parable of the great feast, okay, in verses 15 through 24. And these are all different stories and illustrations to teach us how God's kingdom functions, okay, because it's different than the world. Okay, now I want to read just one of these stories. We're going to look at um, where Jesus teaches on humility and honor in, in Luke chapter 14. So we're going to read verses 7 through 14. Okay, so Luke 14, picking up at verse 7. And he said, where it says, When Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seats of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you has also been invited? The host will come and say, Give this person your seat, and then you will be embarrassed, and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowest place at the foot of the table. Then when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. And then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then he turns to the host. And when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then, at the resurrection of the righteous God, of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. You know, as we look at this, this parable, this teaching, this advice, right, that Jesus gives, um, it, we learn, right, and understand, okay, that, that when it comes to the kingdom of God, Okay, even just the foundation of the gospel is that Jesus gives us what we can't get on our own. Okay, Jesus gives us what we can't get on our own. That, that again, is the foundation of the gospel because, because if we could earn our own salvation, we wouldn't need a Savior. Okay, we would have no use for a Messiah. Okay, we cannot be good enough. We can't do enough right things. We, we, can't, we can't earn our way or work our way to to heaven, to our own salvation, right? That's why we, God sent Jesus, right? To make a way for us where we could not get there on our, on our own. We all fall short of God's glory. All have sinned, right? And yet that's exactly why Jesus came. Okay, he gives us what we cannot get on our own. And, and you see in that, right? This is exactly what Jesus says here in verses 13 and 14. He says, instead invite the poor, the crippled, lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Hey, I encourage you, underline that phrase on your outline in that verse, right? Of those who could not repay you. Because guess what? That's us. 
Okay, in the story, that's, our, that's us, right? That's who we are. That's, that's our role in the story, right? We, we can never repay God for what he did for us. He gave us what we could not get on our own, right? That's why we are saved by grace, right? Something we do not deserve, something we have not earned. Right, and that's, again, how you join the journey of faith, how you receive Christ your Savior, is you just accept his gift of salvation, right? Because Christ lived a sinless life, right? Died on a cross in our place to pay the price that we could not pay by his resurrection. Right? And, and by his resurrection, right, he gave it, he purchased our salvation, what we could not earn ourselves. Right, and we are saved by grace. We can't earn it. All we have to do is accept it, to receive it in our life, invite God in, in to pray and accept his forgiveness and his love and, and, and let God in. Right? That's all it takes to be saved. Right? And, and again, we, um, the only thing that we have earned from God is death. Right? Anything we get from God other than death is by grace. And, and yet he gives us way more Right? Then, then just not death, right? He gives us life. He sets us free, right, from the things that set us back. Okay, and that's the way that it works in God's kingdom. You get what you don't deserve. Right? And that's how you join the journey of faith, is receiving that. But then when we accept Christ our Savior, when we surrender our life and our heart to Him, right, then it starts us in a new direction in our life. It starts in a new journey. Right? And, and in fact, that's the next lesson that we learn here, right? Of, as Jesus turns everything upside down, the, the next section is where Jesus gives some future warnings. You see in verses 31 through 35 and 13, 25 through 35 and 14. Again, we're not going to look at the 13th passage, in fact, but I encourage you to read that. In fact, this is where Jesus um, you know, talks about the fate of Jerusalem. And in that passage is actually where we get a really good glimpse of just the heart of God. Right, and the way that he sees the world and how much he desperately wants the world to come back to him right, and to be forgiven, to be set free. Again, in that passage, we see these future warnings. Now, um, we are going to see and dive into um, this passage in 14, okay, verses 25 through 35. This is where Jesus um, describes right, the cost of being a disciple. You know, this, is, this is one of those passages where we see that, again, God tells us the truth. Right? He tells us exactly the way it is. He doesn't water down. He doesn't, um, you know, hide anything from us. And that's one of the things I love about the Bible, right, is the fact that it tells us the truth. And in this passage, Jesus is very upfront about what it will cost to be a disciple of his. If Luke 14, picking up at verse 25. It says, a large crowd was following Jesus, and he turned around and he said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction, a building, without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might com complete only the foundation before running out of money. And then everyone would, would laugh at you. And they would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first uh, sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. 
And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how, does, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown away, and anyone with ears to hear should listen and stand. Again, this is a tough passage. This is a passage where Jesus um, turns to the crowd, right? And he just and he get, tells them the way it is. And he tells them and he tells us that, 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 that this be, being a disciple thing, there, there's a price to be paid. Right? And, he, and he lays it out from the very beginning. He, again, he tells them and he tells us, right, that following Jesus is a journey that comes with a cost. Again, Jesus as we are see here in this passage, right, there's a large crowd following him, right? I mean, Jesus has already gone viral. People are coming in for all kinds of different reasons, right? Some of them want to be healed. Some of them truly want to be saved. Some of them just want to see and experience what everybody's talking about, right? There's, there's all kinds of reasons, even today, that people come to church, that people come to Jesus, or, or kind of start to, to ask questions about who God is or, or what might be true, Okay, and yet, from all those reasons, Jesus looks at them and he says, hey, I'm going to tell you the truth. Right? Following me comes with a cost. Okay, there's a trade to be made here. And, and that concept is still true today. Right? Every yes you give is an automatic no to other things. Right? You always pay a price for your decisions. Sometimes we don't notice those. Sometimes we don't know, even understand the trade we're making. But you always make a trade with every yes. You make a trade, right? And a yes to Jesus comes with a cost. And there are, are three verses, again, that are presented to us, um, that, and they're giving in the negative. If you notice when he read it, there are three different times when he says, if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. You know, have you, do you ever read scripture and be like, man, I wish he was more clear? Right? Like I, again, he just very clearly says, you cannot be my disciple if you don't do this. Right? This is the cost that must be paid. Now, again, your salvation right, is, is, has already been paid. Right? That is free to us right? it's by grace. Our salvation is free, but it was not cheap. Right? God paid a high price for your salvation. He sacrificed his son. And just in that, as we follow that, right, then we, the more we become like God, the more we are going to pay a cost as well. Okay? For, uh, there's a cost to spiritual growth. Right, to, to becoming more and more like Christ as we enter into that journey. Okay, and this is exactly the cost that Jesus gives us in these three verses. Okay, the first one is this. Is he, he tells us that there is a relational cost to discipleship. Okay, once we receive Christ as our Savior, then we have to grow in our faith. Right, and there is a relational cost. Okay, and we, 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 again, following Jesus will affect your relationships. Okay, this, this verse in... In Luke 14, verse 26, right? He says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Now, this verse, again, is, is tough, right? You read this, and you might be like me. You read it, and you're kind of like, oh, did it really say that? And one of the reasons that we have that reaction is because of the word hate, and I read that, I see that word hate, and hate is a strong word. 
Okay, and in fact, that word, right, comes with all kinds of connotations in our world today, doesn't it? And yet, though, when we look at this word, the, the, the Greek word that is used in this verse, okay, that Jesus says here, okay, is, and it's translated as hate, and it's not a bad translation, but it's a different connotation than we think of, okay, because the way that we think of hate, right, is, is, is anger, right, or hostility, Okay, that, that's not the connotation of the word that Jesus uses here. Okay, in fact, it's very different. Okay, the, the, the connotation of the word that is translated as hate in this verse, okay, it really means it's when there is a conflict within your, your commitments. Okay, saying when things are kind of at odds. Okay, when, um, again, when, when, when you have to choose one over, over the other. Right? It's, it's saying that to hate everyone else means that they are the automatic loser when it's compared to God. Okay, that if you have to choose one, that this one will always win. Okay, that God becomes the first thing, the first priority, the number one relationship. Right? And, and, and if there's ever conflict or at odds between your relationship with God and with with anyone else, right? Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, or anyone else, you have to choose God. Okay, that everybody else becomes the automatic loser. Okay, now, again, it, and it's about a priority list, right? It's not saying that I hate all of them or that I, that I end my relationship with them, right? It's just saying that God takes precedence, that God will always win in my life. Okay, that if, I, if it comes down to where I have to choose between that person and God, I will always choose God. Okay, now we've all felt this, haven't we? Right, there's been times, whether it's, it's in, in, within our own families, extended family, coworkers, neighbors, just in our community, whatever it is, right? There are times when like people, you know, ask us to do things or take attitudes or positions or decisions or things that will get in the way of God. Right? And there's a relational cost, right? Because when, when I have to sit down to that person and say, you know what, like, I, I care about you, I, I'm not against you, but I also can't do that. Right? Or I, I can't make that concession, or I can't give my blessing, right? or whatever it would be. Right? There's a relational cost that happens there. Right? But he says that God becomes first. There is a relational cost to discipleship. Yeah, the, the next thing that, that Jesus throws out here, right, is in, is in, um, is in the very next verse, right? It, and that is the fact that there is a spiritual cost to discipleship. Okay, we are spiritual beings. Okay, that's when, when it says that, that we are made in the image of God. That's what it means. It means that we, are, we have a spiritual side to us. Okay, that, that our soul is, is a spiritual soul. Okay, and there's a spiritual cost to discipleship. Okay, like I said, the very next verse in, in Luke 14, 27, Jesus says, and if you do not carry your, your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Okay, now this, again, this is, just, this is the shortest one out of the three, right? It's literally just one statement, right? Now, again, but when Jesus makes this, when we, again, see the word cross, right, is the cross to us means something very different than it meant to those he said this to originally. Yeah, because of Jesus, because he died on the cross, because he defeated death, right, and sin and, and torture and all that stuff that the cross represented, because he defeated that through his resurrection, right, we see the cross as, as a sign of victory today, 
Right? Again, it's why we have a crosses, right, in our sanctuary. It's why we, we, we wear a cross on, on our, you know, on a necklace or on jewelry. It's why we, we decorate, right, all this, because it's a sign of victory to us. To them, right, the cross meant something very different. Okay, to them, the cross meant death. It meant torture, right? It meant condemnation, right? It, it, it meant the, in fact, the exact opposite of what it means to us today, Right? And Jesus was telling them they knew exactly what Jesus meant. He didn't have to expound beyond that statement. Right? He was telling them, you have to die to yourself. Right? Crucify everything about your own selfishness, about your own desires, right? And you give it all up to God. Right? Again, where we start out, that's just the, where we are in our sinful nature. Right? Our natural human condition is we are number one. Right? We are first. Right, yeah, you follow Jesus, right? The, the spiritual cost of that is that it gets flipped upside down and you become at the bottom of the list, right? I mean, God's first, right? That's obviously the first one, but look at the greatest commandments, right? God is first and then others before us, right? And the first suddenly gets flipped upside down and we're the last in our priority list of life. But we don't live for ourselves anymore. We are now living for God. There is a spiritual cost to discipleship. We will die to ourselves, Right, and we, we, again, we give up that, that control, right? The thing that, the, the thing that, it's, not, that it's not mine, and I don't want to hold on to all of those things, right? That I give those up to God. They are God's. All right, and we saw last week, that's kind of the key, right, to even to, to, to giving, right, and, and to money, right, is knowing that it's not my money at all, that it's all God's. He owns it all, right? But again, part of that control is giving that up, and that's, that's everything. Even when I look at the relational cost, the spiritual cost, I mean, think about as a parent, right, like, I do everything for my kids, right? And, and I hold them dear, right? And, and teach them and, and help them grow and kind of all things. But at the end of the day, I have to remember that they're not my kids. They're, they're God's. Right? And, and I, have, I have to give them up, right? And, and send them off. And, and I'll tell you, as maybe you know, right? My oldest son is literally moving out of my house in two weeks. Right? This is becoming very real to me, right? That he's not mine, Right? And I'm excited to see him go, right? And, and to, to, to see him serve God and, and all that. But yet I have to give him, you know, to God and say, God, he's yours. Like, I've done my best. <laughs> right? And I'm going to continue to do that, right? But, but there's, again, there's a relational cost. There's a spiritual cost. And, and the last one that Jesus gives us is there is a physical cost to discipleship. And again, the same concept plays into exactly what he says, right? It's not just our relationships. It's not just, just my own spirituality, right, and, and my soul. But, but there's also a physical cost to, to discipleship, right? That everything I have, it's not mine. It's still God's. In fact, he, that's what he says in verse 33, right? He says, so you cannot be my disciple without giving up everything you own. Again, he's not telling us that we have to end up with nothing. That's not what he's saying. Right, but he is saying that we, we, everything we have, we, we open our hands to. Right, say, instead of holding on to it so tightly, I say, God, it's, it's yours. Right, my house, my car, right? I mean, other things, it's, it's not mine, right? It's God's. And again, we talked about it last week, right? And we saw that, 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 that I, God gives it to me to use, right? And, and I got to manage it the best I can for God and for his glory. But it, it's not mine. There's a physical cost to discipleship. It doesn't mean I don't have anything. It means that my attitude about what I have is very different. 
right? And as we look at all of these things, right, all these, these areas of life, relationships, spiritual, physical, I mean, all these things, it, it all summarizes into the fact, right, that following Jesus is a serious commitment. Following Jesus is a serious commitment. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus tells them, isn't it? He says, hey, there's these warnings, and I'm telling you, like I'm telling you up front, this is what it costs to follow me. And yet, it is, there's a trade to be made, but it, it's worth it. Right? There is a cost to be paid to, to not just being saved, but to growing in my faith, to moving forward, to being transformed by God's Spirit, to changing the way I think, to, to growing in my faith, to not be stagnant. Right? There is a cost to be paid. And it is a serious commitment that I need to continue to pursue. Right? And that's exactly what Jesus says in these concluding verses that we read. Right? When he talks about the saltiness right? and, and staying salty. Right? He's saying, don't lose your flavor. Again, that, there's the warning to everybody who are already disciples. Right? That, that have already received Christ as their Savior. That they've already joined the journey of faith. And you started that out. But he's saying, but keep going. Don't stop. Don't get stalled out. Don't get complacent. Right? Don't lose your flavor. Do not lose what you've already gained. Keep going. Right? There's a danger, right, in, in your discipleship, in your spiritual growth. You can get stuck. And you, you say, don't do that. Okay, and then the, at the end of 35, right, he also makes a warn, uh, warning and a call, right, to everybody who needs to make that decision. And that's what he says. He says, anybody who has ears to hear, listen and decide. Right, and, and he's, he's, that's an invitation, right, of saying, make that decision. If, if you've never received Christ your Savior, you've never prayed and confessed your sin and invited him into your life and just surrender my own will to him and say, God, save me, right, and, and, and become a follower of Jesus and commit to that, then he's saying, now's the time to make that decision. Right, you've heard, it's been laid out in front of you, you see you, the cost of what you're going to give up is clear, and now it's time to, to respond. Right? Again, and Jesus gives us that invitation, right? No matter where you're at in your faith journey, if you've never received Christ your Savior, he's inviting you into that journey. If you have and you're in the journey, he's inviting you to move forward, right? To be transformed, to be more like him tomorrow than you are today. But he's very clear and upfront. There is a cost to be paid. And so many times we look at that invitation, right? And we look God in the face and we're like, God, thank you for all of that, but I'm fine. Right? Thank you. For dying, thank you for resurrecting, you know, thank you for inviting me into a deeper life, thank you for, for wanting to transform me, right? But I'm fine. I'm happy where I am. And again, that might be an, an, a salvation decision. I, again, if you're here, you've never received Christ your Savior, I'll tell you, God is inviting you into that relationship, that saving knowledge of Him today. Right, if you have received Christ, right, we can get to that place in our faith journey where we just get stalled out and we just start camping. Right, and we're like, thanks God, I know there's more, but I'm fine. But remember, Jesus came to turn everything upside down. Right, and when we can find that place and we realize, we're like, you know what, I've gotten caught in the trap of fine. Right? And so many times, even that response of I'm fine, right, is, is the real response, if we flip it upside down, is our real heart condition is, God, you got to save me. What in your life needs to be flipped upside down? 
What does God need to save you from? Right? It might be eternity, right? If you never see Christ your Savior, he might be sitting here and saying, I want to save you for eternity. Right? But if, if you have received Christ your Savior, he, again, that, that saving process continues, right? As he molds us to be more like him every day as we grow in our faith. And there are things that are holding you back in your faith. What in your life is, is God begging to turn upside down? Again, it all centers on the concept presented in Luke 13, 30. Indeed, those who are last will be first. And those who are first will be last. What in your life needs to be turned upside down? Again, we think about this idea, this concept. I mean, one of the most foundational verses to our faith is, is the challenge every day to be made new by Christ. Right, 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's anyone who belongs to Christ is a new person. Old life is gone and a new life has begun. Right, and that, that is true when you receive Christ as your Savior. Right, but, but we all know, we've all experienced, right, what God turns upside down, sometimes we have the tendency to come back and flip it back over, don't we? Right, and and we, we're at that place of save me, and then we come back and we're like, well, I don't know, we kind of flip, we, and we drift back into I'm fine. Don't do that. Don't make that trade. What in your life needs to be flipped upside down? Maybe it needs to be flipped upside down again. Because it might be holding you back in your faith journey. Yeah, I encourage you today to answer that question. What in your life needs to be flipped upside down? And, and I, I venture to say you're probably sitting there thinking, and there's already something in your head. Okay, now if there is, I'll tell you, you don't have to tell me, right? It's not, it's not about me. It's between you and God. And so talk to God about that. If it's already in your head, right, then pray and commit to God and say, God, flip it back over. Save me. Okay, if you, if you never see Christ your Savior, I'll tell you, the next step is, is receiving him, praying and receiving him into your life. Okay, and, and, and as we look at that, again, as, as we conclude today, right, that's the challenge is saying, is what in your life needs to be flipped upside down? Because that's exactly what the gospel does. That's what Jesus wants to do in your life. He wants to take those that are dead and make them alive. He wants to make those that are trapped and set them free. Right? What in your life needs to be flipped upside down? And as our worship team comes up today, I just encourage you, again, to talk to God about that. If you don't know what needs to be turned upside down in your life, ask him and he will tell you. And then respond to that. Okay, and as they come up, like I said, um, we're going to have a time of response and, and, and deal with whatever God's put in your head. Hey, here's my final thought for you this morning, and it's this. There is a cost to following Jesus, but it is worth the sacrifice. What in your life needs to be turned upside down? Lord God, that is our prayer this morning. God, that you will always be number one in our life. God, that we will never trade or put anything in front of you. And God, I pray, Lord, that as we go this week, Lord, that we will be salty, Lord, that we will spread your light and your love into this world that so desperately needs you. God, I pray that we would pay the cost of discipleship, God, that we would move forward in our faith. And then as we do so, God, we would show this world who you are and how much you love us and how much you want to flip their life upside down to you. God, I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to everything you need us to do. God, that we will live out our faith every day. We will be your church. God, that we will follow through and we'll never be complacent. God, thank you for turning our lives upside down, for saving us, 
for transforming us and for making us more like you every day. And Lord, as we go this week, help us to move forward in that journey. Thank you, Lord. Guide us as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.